Well, hopefully, as you walked in, you got a sheet, and it was actually a folded uh, sheet of paper for the Psalms, and many of you have this from last week. Uh, if you were here, we went through this uh, with some of the time we had at the end uh, of uh, last uh, week, but uh, we have been going through, for those that are visitors, we've been going through uh, Old Testament messages, we've been going through uh, what in one night, basically a, a survey of the message of an Old Testament book. And uh, you get to this book that's kind of in the center, uh, depending on how you count, uh, it's somewhere in the center of the Old Testament. Uh, we <clears throat> recognize that there's just a lot of material when you have 150 of these. Uh, somebody asked me, are we going to cover this in one night? And I said, I'll try. And then I was like, no, uh, we will not be able to cover all of this material in one night, but we will finish this evening. But in looking at this psalm, it's kind of unique because we already know when we get to it that we're looking at a multitude of authors as we go through the book. And this is a, just a matter of review for those of us that were here, but you have psalms uh, with the majority writer being David, uh, and so this, oftentimes they refer to psalms as the psalms of David, but really he's only the author of about half of them. As you look at other ones uh, that are named as the authors, uh, many of these are choir directors, uh, you'd say songwriters in our uh, day, but these are men who uh, were in charge of uh, the worship of God in the temple in one way or the other. And uh, you've got one by Solomon, actually, actually two by Solomon, and then one by Moses, which then lets us know that the Psalms aren't just specifically the uh, area of the time of David and Solomon, uh, that this was written some 500 years before even David and Solomon, about 1440 in that time frame. And uh, there's a psalm in 137, which uh, is written while the Israelites are in the Babylonian captivity. So we can figure out by the authors and some of the events that you have a songbook of poetry and praise uh, written over a thousand years of time. And so it was collected after the nation of Israel came back uh, from the captivity into what we know as the 150 psalms that we have today. Uh, there are some titles, and uh, we went through this, uh, but uh, there's the Song of Degrees, or the idea of going up, uh, and uh, people would have to go up to go to Jerusalem, and so this is the Pilgrim Psalms. We went over this uh, last uh, year during COVID uh, while we were online, and, and some of those times uh, went through the Song of Degrees, but uh, they would sing these probably on pilgrimages to feasts. You have uh, song, or ones that are titled the Sons of Korah. That's just the title that's for it. There are some of the psalms that are titled after events in David's life. And as we said last week, probably the best way to read those psalms is actually to read the event to start off with. Go and read the event that uh, David is talking about and then read the psalm. And some of those, you'd be really kind of amazed that this is the psalm used to t describe that event because you're kind of going, I would never connect the two, but uh, they are together and makes you think a little bit uh, as you read those things. You have these ones known as uh, mascules, which is just simply a, a, one of the Hebrew words for to being wise. It's a psalm to make you wiser, so it's for consideration. And then there are several of the psalms that are 
they're titled at the beginning with musical instrumentation, and to be honest, most people have no idea. They've got you know guesses at what exactly the instrumentation is, and uh, you're just kind of wondering what these terms here mean. No one really knows, and as you read, everyone's got a guess so um, what it means, but they are musical terms. Then there are psalms that have a purpose in their title. It just says this is what the psalm is about. You have one that's to bring things to remembrance, uh, remind you of certain things. There's one that's specifically for a Sabbath day, uh, which would have been for a time of gathering of the nation of Israel to worship and, and those type of things. You have the psalm of praise, which uh, I think is in the flyleaf of our front of our hymn book, the doxology that we sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow, praise him all creatures here below. Uh, psalm 100 uh, is that one, but it's a psalm of praise, prayer of the afflicted, and then a song of loves. This is one that talks about a wedding ceremony, but you realize in reading it is much more than just a wedding ceremony is being described there. Uh, it is uh, the king coming forth to claim his bride, uh, which has all sorts of overtones both for the nation of Israel and the church. Arrangement. Uh, this is something that for some of you was uh, a new thing for you to understand, but this is in there. There are five books to your Psalms. Okay, and they break up in these patterns here. There's five of them, and we said, what's the reason behind it? And somebody actually came up after, I think it was Marge Bayless, came up to me and she goes, I have book one, two, three, four, and five, but then it says book one, the Genesis Psalms, and then you have this book two, and she said the Exodus Psalms, and, and you go, I've never seen that done that way in a Bible before, but uh, they think that these Psalms are arranged into five books to then teach like Moses' Torah did. Moses' five books are known as the Torah. We sometimes call them the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And this is what the nation of Israel oftentimes says, I, I delight in God's law. Well, they would have been reading those first five books of Moses, where they're learning about God and seeing what he can, is capable of doing and all of these things. And so the book of, or excuse me, the collection of Psalms has as an emphasis the Torah. Psalm 19 talks about creation is letting you know about God, but then right in the middle of it, it's telling you that the law of the Lord is perfect. And this is how people understand who God is. And then you get to Psalm 119, and every verse is about some sort of word of God. It's a testimony, statutes, the law, the word of God. It goes by different titles, but each verse is something about the word of God. And so what most people think is that this is arranged in a set of five to mirror you know, Moses' giving of the law, that the Psalms is just a further helping you to understand what God is like, teaching of some of the things that he's done and some of his characteristics and the way that he relates to people. And so uh, this is something that is not you know, a modern uh, creation. This is uh, very ancient as far as uh, its arrangement this way, uh, going all the way back pretty much to the organization. Uh, the books have no actual organization exactly. It's not like you follow one psalm and the next psalm and like you would read a New Testament passage or that type of thing. Though there are themes, the first uh, two chapters, one talks about the choice of an individual that you have a choice to 
be one who loves God, and it's going to change the way that uh, you choose company. It's going to be a talk about the way that you delight in life. You know, the, you're going to delight in the law of the Lord, and in His law you're going to meditate day and night. And you're not going to be like the ungodly who's like the chaff that is blown away, but you're going to be like a tree which is planted by the river's water. And so you have this individual, but then Psalm 2 gives us just an overview of the whole world. What's it like in the whole world? Well, the whole world is not excited about God and his son and his teachings. In fact, they want to break God's bands asunder, and God in heaven laughs at this and just simply goes, uh, I will set my holy one in Zion. I will get what I want accomplished, when I want it accomplished, and where I want it accomplished. And the advice at the end is this, that you, all you kings and judges of the earth, prepare to meet your Lord while before he comes in his judgment. Kiss the son lest he be angry with thee. And then it ends with this, blessed is uh, he that puts his trust in the Lord. And it's just ringing what the first chapter has. And so you have the choice of the nation. And so as you go through some of the Psalms, you're going to see it talking about an individual. In other cases, it's going to be talking about a nation the nation's choice of how they're going to worship God, how they're going to respond to God. And so you see this in what are sometimes called the gateway psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And then this is what we closed with. The last five chapters give the climax of the song. Anybody remember what those psalms start with and end with, each one of them? What phrase? Okay, I'll say it in Hebrew. Hallelujah. What's the, what's the phrase? Praise ye the Lord. And uh, each one of them is a climax that, what am I supposed to do with reading all this? Praise the Lord. Well, what am I supposed to do? Praise the Lord. You just, if you are slow, you finally get it in the end that I'm supposed to praise the Lord uh, for what he has done. Now, here's another way to look at the Psalms, and this is uh, not any longer in the sense of just looking at uh, the titles or who it's written by or that type of thing. We're now getting to the point where you read through certain psalms, you're going to see a certain style of psalms. Uh, There are different psalms that express different things in different ways, and it's by the way that it's arranged grammatically and structurally as far as the psalm is concerned. There are psalms uh, in our Bible that are just simply described as hymns. And you go, what do you mean by hymns? Well, uh, the explanation that you have there is this, is these are ones that generally start with a call to worship, reasons for praising God, and then end for a call to worship. And you look at the examples there, and you go Psalm 146 to 150. Oh, it starts with praise ye the Lord, it ends with praise ye the Lord, and you go, what is it doing in between? It's telling you how to praise the Lord, or what did it praise Him for? Uh, there are psalms that are just like that. You, you go through it, there's no really, I would say, dark passages, confession of sin, anything like that. It's just about God and why he's worthy of praise. And it's a call to praise. And so you have hymns, or excuse me, psalms that are just described as hymns, praising God and in doing this. And that's what you would expect out of a book that that is its goal. There are certain psalms that are described as songs of Zion, because their subject matter is all about Zion. And you go, where's Zion? Well, Jerusalem is uh, the chief mountain of Jerusalem because Mount, uh, Jer- Jerusalem is actually built on several different hills. 
But uh, the chief one is Mount Zion where the temple is built. And uh, these songs are talking about things that God has done. The focus is the temple and Zion because this is the place that God has chosen as the center of his worship and he will protect it. And looking at these psalms, you realize it's not just that God is going to do this during David's day and Solomon's day where he's going to take care of Jerusalem. Because it talks about that this place and this city where God has built his temple is where God is going to dwell forever. And you kind of go, okay, well, how is that possible? Well, you think about when we have the new heaven and the new earth, what is it called? It's called the new Jerusalem. I mean, God has to destroy the earth as part of his judgment. Uh, He destroys the earth but creates a new heaven and new earth, and he's got a new Jerusalem, and God's been dwelling in that heavenly city for eternity, but uh, now it's visible to humankind, and it is going to be the new Jerusalem. Uh, You see some of that focus in these psalms are during the time of David and Solomon and other occasions where it's just praising the fact this is the place that God has chosen to meet with his people, that God actually wants to meet with his people. And that's really what the praise is, and One of the psalms, like Psalm 48, it goes about and it it says, go and look at the gates and the the towers and these type of things and describe them to your children and say, this is the place where God is dwelling and will dwell forever. And so these are psalms that remind you of Psalm 2 because we said, what's Psalm 2 telling us about? Well, God will set his son, his anointed one, in Zion and that this place is the most important place. You know, we might say there are important places on our globe, New York City, places like that, that they would say, well, we're significant and really, really important. But according to God, Jerusalem's the most important place on earth. And so you see psalms that are praising God for choosing a location and choosing Zion, and there are songs of praise for God choosing that location. You have psalms that are known as laments. And let's just talk through this, uh, at least give you what it is. This is the most common type of psalm. It makes up of the third of the psalms that you read. So one out of every three is probably going to sound like this, though I will say this, you have more lament psalms at the beginning of the psalms than towards the end of the psalms. You've been going with us on Sunday nights through Psalm 1 through 15. You feel like everyone's this cry and sorrow and all of that, and you're going, are all the Psalms like this where this person is weeping in agony over sickness or friends that have abandoned them or the circumstances that seem to be out of control? That is the way that seems to be balanced because by the time you get to the end of the Psalms, it's all about praise but it's kind of heavy on the beginning of the psalms that you have these psalms that you could call lament. These type of psalms are normally talking about uh, the psalmist being troubled by his thoughts and actions, complains about the actions of others uh, against him, and at times he's frustrated with God. How long, O Lord? You'll see those type of psalms. How long is this going to go on? Have you forgotten me? And so you'll have these psalms that express 
deep sorrow or agony of soul of an individual. Thus, it's the lament or the lamentation. Normally, structure of a lament psalm contains an opening, like a first verse typically is giving this, or maybe the very first line. A plea to God for help, complaints. Sometimes the people recognize in the psalms that some of these situations are due to their own sin. So there's a confession, or sometimes a claim of innocence, a curse for enemies, confidence in God, and then at the end, typically uh, a quick statement about God will rule or God will rule on his throne forever or God is a refuge, uh, amen. And you'll see these type of things at the end. But these are the ones that you read and you just kind of go, when you read it, it's not the one that you're really overjoyed to read. And usually these psalms aren't your first pick for psalms when people are going, what's your favorite psalm? Uh, Because of the dark kind of overtones in it. And about a third of the psalms have this edge to them that you would say uh, is kind of a, a more oppressive or uh, dark side of human personality in the sense of just being sorrowful or grieving uh, about something. And so you do have lament psalms. There are, as you would expect in the psalms, what we would call thanksgiving psalms. These are different from hymns in that the praise is given for a specific answer to prayer. Okay, so it's an answer to God. Not The hymns are more talking about what God is, his character, not what he's done. Whereas a Thanksgiving psalm is God did this. Let me praise him for this specific event that he has done in my life. And it oftentimes when you read these psalms, it's not referring, though it is sometimes with the psalmist, but it's oftentimes referring to events in Israel's history. And so sometimes you'll have these lengthy histories of the nation of Israel where God is delivered again and again. And, and, and it will be a thanksgiving psalm. And you go, okay, that's proper because you think about that word thanksgiving. It's giving thanks And when do we give thanks? It's when something has been given to us directly. And so you have psalms that are that way as you look through that, 18, 30, 32, 34, and 56 are some specific examples of thanksgiving psalms. There are psalms that are just simply described as confidence psalms. It's not that the person is necessarily praising God and calling everybody else to praise God for who he is. It's just a psalm where you get done with this and this person goes, my God will take care of me. And you read it and you get that sentiment by the time you're done that my God will take care of me. The example there, Psalm 16, is kind of a famous one and we'll see a little bit more about this one later on. But this is a psalm that uh, is used to talk about the Messiah, that thou shalt not leave my soul in hell. And that's a confidence statement because what you're going is, I am going to die someday, but he's not going to leave me in the ground forever. God won't do that. Now, in the case of the Messiah, that's applied directly to the fact that his flesh does not see corruption and thou shalt not leave my soul in Sheol, which is a term for the grave or sometimes a term for hell. But it's a confidence psalm. It hasn't happened yet, but I'm confident that this is going to be the case with God. And so you have psalms that are like this. Uh, These psalms express a trust in God for his character. 
that uh, he will do as he always has and will continue to do so. There are remembrance psalms. The idea with this is just to go back, especially in the nation of Israel's history, to remember events in history that God has miraculously intervened, where God gave a table in the wilderness, not literally a table, but they had manna and they had food, and and so it's a, a statement to remind them of that and that God had uh, parted the waters and delivered the nation of Israel. And so you'll see a lot of that in these kind of psalms where if you have a lengthy history passage, it's probably a remembrance type of psalm. Then you have uh, the penitential psalms. Kind of go, we need those. Yeah, well, uh, we're not perfect. And it's good for us to recognize what real sorrow is like. You know, we too often are uh, sorrowful over the fact that we got caught. And you start reading these penitential psalms and you realize, oh, this is really, this is what true repentance is like. Sorrow over sin. Uh, the Psalm 51, I mean, I'll read you the opening statements. They are familiar probably to you, but this is the one that David gives, and it is in the title, tells us that this is a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So you're going, okay, this is when he's gotten caught. And David starts this way, have mercy upon me, O God. According to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I have acknowledged my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. And then this verse. And this is true repentance here. Against thee and thee only have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight. Thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. I mean, you have things that you go on and continue in that vein, but here he's acknowledging for us, most of the time we think about sin and its consequences to those around us, the damage that we may have done to everybody else, but every sin, regardless of what damage it does to anybody around you, is an offense against God. And there's sometimes sins that we go, well, it's not affecting anybody but me. Well, it doesn't matter. Your sin is still a stepping over what God said, don't cross over. That doesn't look like me. That's not what a person in my image should be doing. And so you have these penitential psalms, uh, the uh, Psalm 38 is another one that has a Excuse me, not 38, 32. Seems to be probably written about the time when David is repenting of his sin because he says this, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity and in whose spirit there is no guile. Sounds like that's a confession of, yes, I've confessed my sins, and in my forgiveness there is a cleansing of soul, a freedom of soul when there is a confession of sin. And so these are good to read. 
for us uh, that this has a confession of God as its main goal, but it's good for us to know what true repentance looks like, what it sounds like, what it should be like in our own soul, and if it's done properly, the refreshing of, refreshment of confession that takes place. And so you have these that are penitential psalms and good psalms to read when you know you have to come back to the Lord and uh, need uh, the encouragement. There are some psalms that are known as kingship psalms, and it's just talking about God is king, and it repeats it over and over again, and God's sovereignty is celebrated, that he is king, that he is ruling, and that he is reigning, and it's just emphasizing that uh, almost in every verse uh, that he is ruling and reigning. And so there are some royal terms uh, in Hebrew culture. There's uh, things in the, even the arrangement of the words that are just pointing out the fact that this is something more royal than normal. So that. Then you have these kind of psalms. And this one's always an interesting study to go through these psalms and realize that these, sometimes written a thousand years before Christ, uh, and you go through them, that these are talking about Jesus before he comes to earth and events that Christ is still going to have yet future to us. Okay, his first work was salvation. His second work is to be the sovereign when he comes back to rule and reign. And you go through these psalms here and they're all pointing to Christ. In these psalms and reading them, there are elements to them that you're going, how in the world did they miss this when Jesus actually shows up, they miss some of the things that are in here. And even with his crucifixion, how do they miss what goes on there? Especially this psalm here, Psalm 22, when it so in exact words and details describes Christ's death, when that psalm starts with, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, or as we would know it, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that's how that psalm opens up. And then it talks about these people that are going around like animals, mocking somebody, and that they gambled for his clothing, and these type of things. And you're going, how in the world did they, the Jews not get the fact that Jesus was the one out of Psalm 22? It's, I would say, intentional ignorance by some of them. But with these Messianic Psalms, all these Psalms are quoted in the New Testament as finding fulfillment in Christ. Psalm 72 out of this batch is not quoted, but speaks of his future millennial reign. Okay, so uh, all these rest of these are ones directly quoted, but it's pretty clear in Psalm 72, it's talking about the Messiah coming to rule and reign, the Christ coming to rule and reign. So when you go through this, sometimes what's good to do as you read through these Psalms is to then figure out what passages in the New Testament use it. And sometimes it's not where you would even think a passage like this would be quoted. Now, I'm going to put this up here for you to see. There, there are different, uh, the Psalms, some of them Christ is referred to in the third person. Uh, Psalm 8, um, uh, Son of man that thou visitest him. Um, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou 
uh, visitest him. Uh, and then this is quoted when you get to the book of Hebrews and other books uh, is referring to Christ. Uh, it's looking at Christ from the outside, kind of a reporter type of view, and talking about him. In Psalm 45, Psalm 102, and Psalm 110, the Psalm 110 is talking about, and uh, that is one of the most quoted psalms out of the New Te- or in the New Testament. But it starts off with this statement, the Lord has said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies my footstool. And then verse 4 is, the Lord hath sworn and will not repent, thou, you, art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, You say second person. It's when you see uh, these and thou's in our English, you statements. When you're talking to somebody directly, you are this way. And so you have Psalms that are there where Christ is being spoken to in the second person. But in Psalm 2, 16, 22, 40, and 69, you actually have statements that Christ makes. And in that passage, it's first person, I, that's what we mean by first person, or me, these type of things. And so you have these different types of ones. It's not somebody uh, out there reporting or saying something to him. It's actually things he's saying uh, in these psalms. And so you have some of these psalms that are like that, which are good for study later on. Uh, you have two psalms that you should be familiar with, uh, which just the, I've said them over and over again, but they're the Torah psalms. Psalm 19, where it talks about general revelation of the sky and, the, and all of these things can reveal God, but you need the law of the Lord, which can convert the soul. Testimony of the Lord is right, and these type of things that you find in Psalm 19, uh, because by these things your servant is warned, as you find at the end of Psalm 19. And then Psalm 119, uh, you have 176 verses that are all talking about God's Word. And uh, each one of them worthy of your meditation and just mulling over it would maybe be a good practice for maybe half a year to go through one verse of Psalm 119 a day along with the rest of your Bible reading, but have that be your verse and meditating on what the Word of God is like. Uh, It'd be a practice to perhaps do. Now we come to the ones that are the most controversial out of all the Psalms, and these are the ones that are called the imprecatory Psalms. You say, why are they called imprecatory? Well, these Psalms are very difficult to deal with because on the surface there seems to be a very unchristian attitude. Okay, let me just turn to Psalm 35 and give you some of the wording that comes out of this. Well, first one just simply starts with this statement. Plead my cause, O Lord, with them that strive with me. Fight against them that fight against me. But verse 8, he says this, Let destruction come upon him at unawares. My soul shall be joyful in the Lord. It shall rejoice in his salvation when you're talking about the destruction of individuals. And uh, you can go on. Yeah. 
But uh, you can read some of these psalms. It talks about breaking out of teeth and this type of thing. You're going, well, that's not very Christian. When was the last time you punched somebody in the mouth and it was, you know, considered to be okay? And so people read these psalms, and in the psalms, the, the psalmist is saying, Lord, hurt this person or group of people. And you're going, that, that, you know, aren't you supposed to, you know, someone comes up and smite you, you just kind of turn the other way and let them hit you again, that type of attitude, is that not what Christ taught? So is the psalmist somehow wrong here that we have a couple of psalms that are just completely off base, they really weren't written by the Holy Spirit, and, you know, okay, they're just kind of, you know, they're out there, and, you know, when you're feeling mad, you just go to those and go, it's okay for me to, to think this way and do these things. How do I deal with these ones that have statements that are harsh, kind of uh, mean at times, seemingly from a Christian perspective? What you need to consider is first a consideration is the historical context. Some of this cry is a response to some harsh and violent assault on God's people. Psalm 137 is one of these psalms, and this is the one that's the latest one written. Uh, because uh, it's talking about the Babylonian captivity and the person is hanging their harps on the tree because they can't find a song to sing because they've heard of the destruction of Zion, Jerusalem. And you go, well, I, you know, they, they, they say some unkind things there. Have you ever read through Lamentations and read what happened to the people in Jerusalem? There wasn't any kindness going on there. There weren't deeds of niceness being done by the Babylonians. Uh, there was very little there that you could commend uh, as good when they went through and sacked that city, that they took people away as slaves, that they pillaged uh, everything that they got, that they raped the women, they were killing children and uh, ripping unborn babies out of their mothers. Okay, so you, you kind of go... Oh, so this isn't, you know, someone came up and said something un, unkind to me and I feel bad, so I hope they get it. No, this is some real life destruction and death was brought by a group of people against somebody else. Okay, so that's uh, sometimes the historical context. Second consideration is the larger, larger theological context of the psalm. It is for God's people and his cause that the psalmist is moved. Okay, very little do you find that the psalmist is saying, Lord, do something really hurtful because I got hurt. No, he's usually talking about God's people were hurt. And as you read through it, you, you begin to read these psalms and you're like, okay, this is a whole group of people that were hurt by some situation uh, and the, specifically the nation of Israel is oftentimes the one that is hurt. And so he's saying, okay, these are your people, God, do something to protect them. If you're their God, protect them. Third consideration is that these imprecatory prayers are cries of justice for those that can do nothing and is in line with God's character of justice. Do you, I mean, just think about this. Is there going to be any unkind and cruel act that will not go unpunished? And if the answer to that is this, no, then you've missed the fact that a God is a God of justice. 
because every deed of evil and every cruelty will be judged. And you say, well, what about me not having judgment? Well, that's because Christ took your judgment. He took your eternal punishment for your sin. So it's not that you're getting away with your sin. It's just that someone took your punishment. God's justice was poured out. But there are others who have not taken Christ's gift, and you say, so are their deeds going to be uh, go unpunished? And the answer is, every deed that they've done, they will pay for. It's part of God's justice. It's who He is. And so when this person is sometimes crying for justice, they're not crying outside the boundary lines of what God is saying. If someone does something wrong, does something cruel, does something evil, God will judge. And so with this imprecatory prayer, this individual is saying, Lord, carry out the justice that's deserved. The eye for the eye, the tooth for the tooth. What, what this person has divvied out to somebody else, may it return on their own head. And so you have that as a part of it. Fourth consideration is the opportunity to recognize the depth of human suffering. It gives the reader an understanding of the reality of great pain. I mean, I, I am a person who loves history, but there, there are certain portions of history I read, and I don't enjoy reading it. I don't know if any of you have ever had the opportunity, and I don't know if you call it an opportunity, but it's a good learning experience, uh, to go to the U.S. Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., I have taken teenagers there, and we tell them, listen, uh, you're going to go in here, and this is going to just kind of show you what uh, humanity is like at its worst. And uh, if you can't handle it, just go to the end, and we'll meet you when we get out at the end. Now, these are kids who are tuned to what goes on oftentimes on television or whatever, and with the news cycle we have and video games, cruelty is not something that's unusually predicted, but every time we've gone there, we've had individuals that just go, I can't handle anymore. I can't believe that this kind of cruelty goes on and this type of thing happens, Uh, and it's a sober, I mean, put it this way, it's sobering. That's what these psalms do. You, you begin to realize that people are responding to real-life cruelty that has taken place, and they've experienced it. You know, we live in a, a protected environment. And so sometimes it's good for us just to recognize, as you read through some of these imprecatory prayer, there are, are people who are suffering right now. They've been jailed in unknown, uh, really, places for 30, 40 years because of their faith and testimony in Christ, and no one knows about them, and they suffer cruelly at the hands of evil individuals day in and day out. And we live every day in freedom. You know, so it does. It serves as a stopping point for us just to realize the depth of human suffering uh, that is out there. But also this, consider that many of these are prophetic in fulfillment of the ministry of Christ these psalms uh, are sometimes filled with uh, references to Christ, and you go, well, who suffered the worst of humanity? Christ himself. 
Christ himself was willing to bear up under the justice that others were willing or were deserving of, and he did this himself. And so as you think about the greatness of the cruelty of individuals, and then you suddenly realize Christ paid for sins like that. That gives you hope. That someone will pay for every injustice that goes on, but Christ took his own self, sinless, and upon him the justice of God was put upon him. He suffered worse than anyone else. Open shame. He came into the world, the world received him not. He came into his own, his own did not receive him. He was rejected of men. And so you think about these psalms and you go, well, you know, it's not, a, I don't like, you know, the tone of that. Well, there is a a rightness in calling for justice that God takes care of individuals who are doing evil and are unhindered. It's right to pray for that. So when you get to individuals like an Adolf Hitler, a Mao Zedong, a Joseph Stalin, a Saddam Hussein, is it, is it right to ask the Lord to bring judgment upon individuals like that? And the answer is, yeah. But is it also right to go, God, if it's your, your will, extend your mercy to an individual like that because Christ can handle their punishment and extend grace to them. So there is that element that, yes, you pray for judgment, but you also go, Lord, you can save anyone. You can rescue anyone. Your son died for all mankind and suffered at their hands. Last psalm, and uh, we're done. Category, it's the acrostic psalm. And you go, what do you mean is it acrostic? It's harder to see in English language, but uh, these are psalms that each verse starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. They're usually 22 verses in length. You go, why is that? Because there's only 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so sometimes when you see psalms that have 11 verses or 22 verses, which when you get to Lamentations, you'll find that there are 22 verses or you get a very special arrangement of acrostic. There are 66 verses. Kind of go, how's that work? Three verses with the same letter. Or you go to Psalm 119, and that's the really unusual case because you can see each letter of the Hebrew alphabet before each eight verses. And when you see the Aleph, when you start off verses one through eight, that's the first letter of the alphabet, kind of like our A. Uh, each one of those verses in Hebrew starts with Aleph. And it's arranged that way. And you go, why is that the case? Because it gives an acrostic for you to remember and a lot of uh, these uh, acrostic psalms were probably designed for memorization so that you could remember uh, with the letters there where you go, oh, this is the verse that starts with B. We, we had a game like this uh, when we came back on senior trips, and it was the alphabet game, and it was what did you see on your senior trip? And so, you know, the first person in the vehicle go, I went on my senior trip, and I saw uh, Abraham Lincoln, you know, and... Uh, then uh, the second person goes, well, I went on my senior trip and I saw Abraham Lincoln and uh, what starts with B? Uh, a bearded man, you know, because there, there's some certain occasions, you know, and that. And, and then, you know, the third person might go, okay, I, I went on my senior trip and I saw Abraham Lincoln and a bearded man 
and the Constitution, you know, and so by the time you get to the Z, you know, you're kind of remembering things that you did on that trip. So it is for these acrostic psalms. They're like that, where you have A and B and C and D, and what was that psalm, and you can remember it, and so it's designed for memorization. Uh, If you're Hebrew, it's a little bit more difficult in English to memorize these. So those are, you know, we spent that time, but uh, there's a lot of material in the Psalms. You will never uh, get to the depths of reading through the Psalms. There are different ways to study it, different ways to think through it, different ways to read through it, different ways to do that. And uh, this is kind of just an overview, giving you some of that uh, different things that you can go and look at your Psalms a little bit differently uh, and study it a little bit differently and get some more wisdom and uh, have more to praise God for by the time you're done. Okay. Oh, there we go. I'm sorry. There were people waiting for that. What was that last line? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, the depths of the Psalms that you've given to us, the richness of who you are and what you've done but yet also a reflection of our own character and humanity as we read this. And so, Lord, as we go through the Psalms time and time again, hopefully year by year, we're uh, once again uh, delving back into the songbook of the nation of Israel as you work with your people. May we be encouraged that you're a God that uh, always does what you promise. You're a God who never fails, you never slumber or sleep, and we're thankful for that and that You are a God that will hold to your promises. May we be confident in who you are, praise you for what your character is like, thank you for the things that you've done, and be really people that reflect uh, what you're like and uh, do that in worship that we can find in the Psalms. But we love you, Lord. Thank you for uh, your goodness. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.